Beyond the Bounce, we're back. Jason Pruitt, Danny Mack. This episode, we got Walter Bishop from Birmingham, Alabama. He's an HBCU grad from Alabama A&M, a father of two, married to the great head coach at Cal Poly Pomona, Danielle Bishop. He started off as a student assistant with Alabama A&M and then became a graduate assistant as a manager. He's a mechanical engineer by day, and ladies and gentlemen, Walter Bishop does it all. You do not want to miss this episode. I'm a California boy through and through, but after this week's podcast, I feel like I've been living in Alabama for the past five years. Man, this episode's got it all, including that Southern soul. I'm telling you, you do not want to miss this episode. Let's go. Keep the political commentary to yourself. Or, or, or as someone once said, shut up and dribble. Another week, another episode, Beyond the Bounce. This week, we got Alabama native, Alabama A&M graduate, Walter Bishop is on the line. Walt, what's up? What's up, JP? Thanks for having me on. Hey, this is this is going to be an epic episode when you got two dudes from the country. You never know what's going to come out. <laughs> True that. So you from Bethma, right? Birmingham. You got to get it right. There's a difference between Bethma and uh, Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham. What's the difference? It's a huge difference, man. You don't tell anybody from Bethma they from they're from Birmingham. That's when the fight started. Ain't y'all, ain't y'all right next door though to each other? Yeah, they're right next door to each other, but it's it's, it's a it's a different place. My uh, my folks are from Bessemer, but uh, I'm I'm from Birmingham. So is Bessemer the area where we go park to go to walk the Legion Field? No, that is in Birmingham. Bessemer is on the west side of uh, Birmingham. Legion See, Field is. Legion Field's in the heart of downtown almost. See, I don't think I've never been to Bessma. I know growing up, going to many Magic City Classics that we parked in People Yard and, and walked to Legion Field. So I always thought that was Bessma. No, you're still a long ways from Bessma if you're at Legion Field. You got to keep going west on, uh, on I-20 to get to Legion Field. I mean, to get to Bessma. Gotcha, gotcha. So how long have you been out in California? Let's see, I've been out here since 2007, December of that year. So I am going on, oh man, was that 13 years, almost 14 years? Is California home now or what? No. <laughs> the longer I am out here, the more I realize I am a country boy from Alabama. California is just where I lay my head. I'm, I'm, I'm a Bama boy through and through. So Alabama native, California resident. Yup, exactly. I'm trying to get back to Alabama, but you know we'll we'll see how that work out. Uh, I don't think my my better half is trying to get to Alabama. Hey, if it was up to the rest of my clan, we would already be in Alabama. So, so where did you go to high school at down in that area? I actually went to high school in Pell City. I, I moved to Pell City. In middle school, you know, finished up middle school and uh, high school in Pell City, which is east of Birmingham. But I grew up in West End, 
uh, community of Birmingham. Oh, I remember the West End. What, did y'all have a West End high school? Yeah, West End High School. So back in the day, I think it was West End and Minor. Am I correct? Yeah, Minor was in Bessemer. And West End was in, uh, you know, obviously the west side of Birmingham. Uh, and uh, back in the day, basketball-wise, Ra um, Ra Scott was the head coach at uh, West End, and he had some really good defensive teams. They won a, a couple of state championships. But they were that school that focused so much on defense that uh, they were going to slow the game down, and it might be a score of 10 to 12. Not a lot of high-scoring games. My first they, they were gonna... my first introduction to minor was at a basketball game. I want to say back in 94, 95, and I don't think I've never seen so many black people in one gym. Oh, yeah. Back in the day, minor, that area, my uh, sister used to live over in that area, uh, the Mulga uh area of uh, Birmingham and uh that back in the day minor had a really good program they they were just kind of i think they're a little bit north of Bessemer and uh, west of Birmingham so after Pell City you you enrolled in Alabama A&M or what what's the path yeah i went to Alabama A&M after uh high school the only school I applied to go to college because I took a trip up there for senior day and I knew that's where I was supposed to be what 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 made you want to like so I'm from that area you know not really from there but I spent a lot of time in that area and you know you always hear about the stories up on the hill what was it that attracted you to the hill well first of all the first time I went there is uh you know just like you I have to back up just like you I grew up going to the Magic City Classic, and I was there for the bands and everything. And I actually was not planning on going to Alabama A&M. Um, my choice is going. My mom worked at Samford University in Birmingham. Uh, thought about Samford, uh, but you know it's a private school. It's a you know just wasn't a good atmosphere. It's kind of a stuffy, not my kind of crowd type of school, and. Uh, then I thought about going to like Morehouse and I wanted to go to Howard or in, uh, but then I realized I didn't really want to go far from home. And I had a friend who was going to A&M and my sister was going to join her. They were best friends in high school. And my sister was going to go to A&M. So we went up there for high school senior day and just the atmosphere, the campus was beautiful. It sits on the side of a hill in North Huntsville and everything was just down to earth, low key. And, uh, Spent that day on the on the hill. Uh, went to a football game. And I just loved the atmosphere. My friend Hope, who was already in school there, she just kept talking to me because uh, her whole family went to A and M, uh, and so she was like, "You should come to school here. You should come to school here." And went up there, and I was like, "Okay, come to school here. Only school I applied for." Man, so you are married to one of the most successful Division Two basketball coaches in the country and especially in California went to a sweet 16 went to a national championship been to a final four and the reason I'm saying that because I'm parlaying it into this so you're in a basketball home now you were in a basketball mecca during that age you were at A&M talk about that atmosphere well back then when I first got there we were division two school and 
the the women's program was coached by Press Parham, and he has some really good teams. And I ended up working for for Coach Parham. But basketball wise, Van Petaway and the men's program were, I mean, they were routinely one of the top five teams in the nation. I think they went to four straight uh, elite eights. Uh, routinely led the nation and scored. And and going to a game back then. It was standing room only. It was live. It was a tough place to go play in Elmore. A lot of people who came visit to, to visit the games, they would say we turned the heat up uh, and Van tried to sweat people out. But, I mean, he just had some really great teams right through the mid-90s, early 90s to basically all of the 90s up until we moved to Division One uh, at the Division Two level. I mean, it was just... I mean, they routinely didn't win, but a couple of games a year. And the games were just, it was an event. It, it was, you didn't schedule a, a night class uh, because you were going to the game. And for certain games, Tuskegee, Alabama State, if you didn't get there at half, by halftime of the girls' game, you weren't getting in the gym. Man, and I, I was fortunate enough to play in that conference. And I can remember in the early 2000s that atmosphere between SWAT schools still being that atmosphere. It probably wasn't the same as when you were there because you were there during the heydays. But to hear the band, I tell people, to experience coming out and you got the band in the gym, talk about that, Walt. Oh, man, that was like – because it wasn't a pep band, right? You know, it's March Madness, and normally March Madness, you see the little – pep band they got a little drum set and about you know 12 people maybe 15 <laughs> people in the band and they're playing the, the old pep song <laughs> man at AM and just like at all the uh hbcus you know the band has to show up late and they got to make an entrance so you're sitting there and there's warm-ups and all of a sudden you just hear boom and then the place gets to rocking and, w- and what's funny is uh when you're playing a non-HBCU school, right, and they're not used to that atmosphere, when all of that starts to happen, it's just shell-shocked, right? And uh, one of the funniest things I ever saw was uh, when I worked for Coach Parham and the women, we were playing Jacksonville State, and the girls were having a great game, and um, it was a tough game at halftime. Hardly anybody there. Well, the guys were going to play Bama State uh, for this uh, – the double header that night right so of course if you're not in the gym by halftime of the girls game you're not getting in so when halftime of the girls game happened there's nobody in the gym right the girls knew what was going to happen but when jacksonville state came back out on the floor all of a sudden a half empty gym not even half empty was completely packed and the band started coming in right when they came back on the floor and the look on the Jacksonville State uh, team's eyes said it all. They were just like, what happened? From that point on, Coach Parham could not get a non-HBCU school to play him. And um, and the guys were playing the doubleheader against Skiggy or, or uh, Bama State because they were like, nope, we're not coming in for that atmosphere because that's, that's a game changer. That's the best atmosphere as a – student athlete that I have ever been a part of the so when I was at Mississippi Valley State this is when all the HBCU bands started playing 
the sports center theme. You remember that? Yes. Yes. And they jazzed it up and they got the rocket. And then that year we had Diddy song, You Can Hate Me Now. And you hear those horns blowing when you come out on the court. Oh, it, it was live, man. And I tell you, when we went to the SWAC, that that took it to another level because, you know, being a part of the SWAC, like we were at the SIAC when we were Division Two, and we had rivalries, but it wasn't the same. In the SWAC, you had rivalries. And then when we came in, we were the new kids on the block, and it was like, no, nah, we're going to show you guys how we do this in the SWAC. And it was just like, Holy cow, it was just off the chain everywhere we went. And it was it was a pretty fun atmosphere. So I had never like I played my first two years at junior college at uh, Calhoun, which was the largest JUCO in Alabama, and it was a PWI. We had nine thousand kids, but it was predominantly white. Right. When I played my first SWAT game, coach used to say all the time, Hey rookie, you may have played two years. You know, I played for Lafayette Stribling. Yeah. <laughs> So he's like, hey, you turkey, you may play two years, but you ain't got no swag hours, so sit down and shut up. <laughs> and I got to thinking, swag hours? I remember the first swag game when they introduced the starting lineup. They would say, starting, Jason Pruitt, shooting guard, and the whole band section would be like, Use oh, but they didn't say oh. You know what they were saying? <laughs> hey, I know exactly what they were saying at A and M when they did the introductions. It'll be Jason Pruitt at shooting guard. The whole student section, everyone would just be like, "Ain't <laughs> hit." <laughs> Let's just say, and they weren't saying hit, and they were saying it for the whole lineup, right? And it was, it was such a great atmosphere. And I looked around because you know I didn't know, and I, I said, "Are you serious?" And then we played at, at I think I maybe coach took me out the game at and this was at AM. I had one of the best games in my SWAT career at AM because you know you gotta show out when you come on. <laughs> they coach took me out the game and all I heard was sit, 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 sit. And I was like, what are they talking about? Then when I got to the bench, they was like, sit your butt down. <laughs> and they weren't that nice about it. No, they, they, they wasn't. And I, I tell any kids, like, if you can ever, I mean, that's just something you have to experience. Oh, uh, it's, it's an atmosphere that is just, I mean, at AM, the gym's pretty tight and the student section, you can sit in the student section and literally tap the guy sitting at the end of the opponent's bench. That's how tight it was. And I can't tell you the number of times the student section had the, the visiting coach uh, mad because they're sitting right in his ear just talking. And then even more than that is uh, it's a community, right? So uh, North Huntsville is a, a large A&M community. We had a bunch of uh, older guys who sat right behind the visitor's bench. And one of them was a pastor of one of the local churches. They didn't say anything bad, but man, it's amazing how nice they could heckle <laughs> the visiting team and get into their heads. And with you saying that, I was just about to bring that up. So my elementary school principal was Sam Brewer. Mm -hmm. And he sat right behind the bench the entire game and was like, son, I, I thought I thought I thought you 
taught you better than that. I can't believe you went down there to Itabina. Like the whole game, as you were saying. He must have been sitting with Reverend Montgomery then. <laughs> like Sam Brewer, Kango hat to the side, maroon Kango hat. That was my that was my elementary school principal. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a great and atmosphere. And and if you if you did happen to beat uh Coach Petaway and uh the men's team, oh when you came out to warm-ups, only thing you would hear playing on the uh, PA system is James Brown's the big payback because uh, Dan was that cocky. He was going to let you know. You may have beat me once, but we're about to run you out this gym. And that's what his plan was. So you you mentioned earlier that you you worked on the women with the women's coach. What, what did you do for the women's team? Well, I started off as a uh, manager for the women's team. Uh, coach Parham was a friend of uh my friend who taught me to go into AM and uh so he was looking out for me and he needed some help and I never even applied for it. He just asked me one day, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? And then he was like, I need you to show up Saturday morning and be there at nine. And from that point on, most of the undergrad I worked for him as a manager and then um a student coach and a grad assistant coach. What was the method of travel in the swag? <laughs> oh man, we all these kids at Division One level, and even some of these Division Two schools, they get to fly everywhere. We crowded on the bus, and that's how we rode. If you're going to if you're going to Houston, ten hours on the bus. <laughs> you're going to Itabina, about five six hours on the bus. That's how we rode. And uh, I will say this, the longer we were in the SWAC, the more we started to uh, fly, uh, like to Houston and, and the longer trips. But the best times, I think, and from some of, the, some of my friends who's played both with the men and women, they'll tell you some of the best times were spent on that bus riding hours where you just got to hang out with everyone. Uh, when I was at Mississippi Valley State, I remember boys and, bo well, men in the back, Women in the front. We 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 doubled up and we we went on those trips in the swag together. Oh, hey, we must have been living in luxury because once we moved up to Division One, we stopped doubling up uh, and we started taking two buses because you know we had to do it right. You know we were big time. We can't be cramming up on the bus. But in our Division Two days, it was one bus, two teams, and uh, two staffs on the bus, and it was tight, man. I tell you, you just get in where you can fit in. I do remember the thing about Valley, though, that non-conference schedule. I can remember taking that bus from, from campus, taking it right on the runway, and walking right on the plane. I said, man, this is the life. And the players looked at me, and they said, wait till we get in the swag season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that goes out the window. And, you know, you know, because we traveled in partners, right? So Alabama State was A&M's partner. So as we're traveling, you know, we're going out to Itabina, and I see, I think Grambling was the uh, – the, the partner school for uh, for uh, Valley. But we'll see Bama State's bus on the road, right? You know, we're going one direction, Bama State's heading down in the other direction. You know, we go to Houston, we all stayed at the same hotel. And and uh, so it, it, even though there was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, rivalries, a lot of smack talking uh, in the SWAC, it still was a, uh, it was all about the SWAC, right? You know, is the common thing. All the teams had that in common. We're going to, you know, compete. Don't want to lose to anybody in the SWAC. But at the same time, 
it's a, it's all about the swag. I I thought I had it bad at, down in Itabina, but when we went and played Jeff Kamen, and he was at Alcorn, I said, "Man, where are we going?" <laughs> oh, yeah, Alcorn's in the middle of nowhere. I thought Itabina was bad, man. That's a uh, first time going out to Alcorn. It was for a football game, and uh, I was helping the uh, SID out. And we had to go on campus on that Friday night on Alcorn's campus. And we stayed in Natchez. It took us 45 minutes to drive from where we stayed all the way to Alcorn's campus. And I was like, there's no way I would have went to this school because it's in the middle of nowhere. Like nowhere. People, and we're not exaggerating. Go on the map and look and see what the, I think the closest city, I don't even know what the closest city is. Is it Norman? I don't even know what the closest city is. The, the closest city is Natchez on one side and Vicksburg on the other side. Ooh. So doing your role with the women's basketball team, what, what are some of the things you, you picked up? You know, what, you know, being a, the going from a, cause you started from a graduate manager to a student assistant to a grad assistant, you checked every box. What, what was some of the things you learned in your four years? Uh, being around, uh, just learning the game, right. Learning the different philosophies, uh, from what coach Parham, coach Parham used to have a philosophy. He wasn't high on shooting percentage, right? His idea was if I can get up as close to a hundred shots a game, right, and shoot about 30%, you're going to have a hard time beating me, right? And then when we joined the SWAC, we learned real quick, you better learn how to play some defense because that was back in the heydays of the Gremlin when, um, when Bibbs was down there at Gremlin and Rusty took over for Gremlin's women. And they were, I mean, they were killing folks down there. And uh, so you have to be athletic and play defense. And then with Van, just his tempo with the men, his tempo was high flying. His philosophy was he wanted his center to get the ball out of the net on a, on a made basket, get it inbounds. And before the defense could set up, he wants to be uh, making a basket. And his philosophy with that was while you're celebrating because you might've hit a three, you might've had a dunk while you're celebrating. We just ran the ball down your throat and, you know, got an easy basket and his, his whole Philosophy was high flying above the rim, pressure defense, 94 feet. And he's had some great players that could play that style of basketball. Is that a style you have to recruit to, or what do you think? Uh, to play that kind of basketball, you have to recruit. You cannot, if you're a kid and you don't know how to play fast pace, up tempo. Um, you, you weren't going to like being at uh, playing for Van and even for Coach Parham. Uh, they wanted to push tempo. They didn't want to settle. They wanted to push the tempo. And and when, even when you thought you were pushing it, they were going to push you even more to go faster. By explaining that style and you being in the household that you are in, do you think that style could work in any of the D2 conferences on the West Coast? Well, I think it can. Uh, being uh, the conference that my wife coaches in, I think you have a mix. You have some teams that want to play up-tempo, but then you have some other teams that are really good at playing a controlled half-court um, uh, offense with some pressure. So, 
I know in the West Coast, there's a lot of different uh, styles in the conference. And, you know, typically, and you've been around basketball, right? Uh, typically, the styles of basketball in the conference kind of mimic each other to an extent. But in uh, the conference my wife plays in, it's, it's a mixture from one school likes to walk it up, slow it down, and they're really good at playing defense and forcing you to play really slow. And they try to keep the, the score in the 50s and 60s. Then you have others that want to shoot the three and try to get the score up into the 70s, if not the 80s. So what style do you prefer? Me, personally, I'm a defensive guy, and I like pressure. I, I don't like uh, a lot of half-court sets because, to me, I don't understand why I would like one of defense to set up. I want to put pressure on the defense to make them scramble to uh, stop me, right? So I like, I like up pace, fast tempo, few sets, uh, try to take advantage of the uh, mismatches on defense, and then – turn around and, and let my defense score uh, offense. And that's what I tell my wife. She, she doesn't listen to me. She doesn't really need to listen to me. <laughs> uh, but I do tell her, like, hey, hey. Because the way I see it is when, you're, when you have a hard time scoring, and that's what I think a lot of teams um, who are high-scoring teams and they like to shoot the ball, when they have a hard time scoring, they don't know what to do. And that's when you should turn your defense up let your defense manufacture easy uh, scoring opportunities until you get into that groove again, right? And then open the offense back up. But I'd much rather get uh, some bad passes, turnovers, and steals and turn that into about 10 points, 12 points at least from just turnover layups and stuff like that. If it was me, that would be a good day. And talking about this style is funny. So your your wife is the head coach and, and you're a basketball mind. I'm the head coach and my wife is a basketball mind. Some of the conversations in my house can get real heated when we have a different opinion on philosophies or what we should have done in this game. Have you ever had situations like that? Well, I will say this, and I hope I hope uh no one listens to this podcast, you know. Uh, in the family, but I learned real quick uh, with my wife. Uh, her dad coached her. Her dad taught her the game. She coached with her dad in the AAU circuit uh, when she first started in the coaching. And early on, she used to talk to her dad a lot. And then it got to a point to where she had to stop talking to her dad after the game because he would criticize everything. You know, so she just had a tough game. And she would do her normal call to her dad, and he's constantly like, well, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Why did you put her in? Why did and she's like, you know, already not happy, right? So I've learned that we'll talk, but I give her her space, and then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, like, hey, so what, what was the reason for you making that sub? Or, you know, like, sometimes I will tell her right off the bat, you know, she's, she's not one to run up the score, and she'll sometimes too early go into a uh, – uh, uh, spread the offense to slow the game down. And I'm I'm kind of opposite of, hey, what got you to this point, right? So keep the pressure on, you know, don't slow it down too soon. So I'll tell her, like, hey, you, you slowed it down a little too early. You should have waited a little bit. Well, you can let her know that uh, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm going to run it up. <laughs> 
Uh, hey, we, we get a good laugh at you because I, I know you still uh still a little salty about the, the exhibition game. <laughs> we should call call the timeout to uh, try to run a set play with just a couple of seconds on the on the on the on the, on the uh, scoreboard and uh she was already up pretty big on you. So I told her, I said, you know, when JP gets an opportunity, <laughs> he's gonna, he, he hasn't forgotten about it. I'm, I'm going to run it up, and I'm going to call time out. <laughs> but it's in love. It's all love. It's all in love for the game. Hey, it, it wouldn't be the first time, man. She's, uh, you know, you've been in the game long enough. There are some games where you have the big, big leads, and it's all great. And there are some games where, like I like to tell us, sometimes you walk into the wrong gym on the wrong night, and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, and and so she's gotten a little bit better with that, uh, not taking it all too personal. She because she used to get really heated with every loss, and it's like, man, your your season's too long to stay that hot. You know, you know, just go back out and fix it. And uh, you know, you're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some. But let's try to win more than we lose. So before we move on, I know you have probably heard this story. So I move out to California. I'm coaching this new team. I need exhibition games. I just picked up. I said, oh, this school is close to us. Let me call. Um, one of her assistant coaches picked up the phone. And I said, hey, we're we looking for a game exhibition. You, you think you can put us down? We end up working out the game. And then I pressed them. I said, hey. I, I called them back. I said, hey, I just looked at y'all's schedule. I didn't know y'all just lost the national championship. I, I said, y'all going to have to give me some money to come over there. You got to give me something. So I know he probably didn't do it. He called me back 10 minutes later and was like, she said no. And I was like, well, no, that's not going to work. I said, I need you to push her. You need to let me talk to her. And then he called back again. He was like, hey, I pushed her. She said, you know, we ain't got it, but, you know, we'll still love to, love to have you. So I said, okay, cool. We coming. So the day of the game, something was happening. We was running late. Uh, our bus was running late. And I get a phone call, and he was panicking. He was like, hey, you know, the 20-minute the, the clock that started, are you, where y'all at? Are y'all still coming? And I said, hey, did you get my money I asked for? And he was like, she said, no. I said, well, you tell her we ain't coming. <laughs> <laughs> and the phone got dead silence. And I said, hey, man. I'm just joking with you. We outside in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that story pretty good. She she was not happy, but she then told me, like, when she got to start talking and, and she found out you're from Alabama, and then she's like, you know, she said, you know, my husband's from Alabama. And then she tells me, like, it's a small world. He He's from up north Alabama where you went to school. And then, you know, that's when we found out, you know, I was at A&M while you were at, at, at Valley. And then, um, you know, we had a... A good friend of mine at AM was a relative of yours. So it's, you know, it's one of those small world where, you know, you never know when you're going to cross paths with people. And I, I appreciate it because you, your family has been nothing but nice and, and opening to me since I have been out here. Um, I make this joke all the time. I think Danelle has actually offered me to come on her staff two times in a row. I just 
happened to get head coaching jobs at those times and, and, and didn't make it. But you have been like a, a, big, a big brother from Alabama that I can always pick up the phone and call. And one thing I know about us Alabama people, we're going to tell you the truth. And I know I'm always going to get the truth from you <laughs> no matter what. Hey, that's that's how I try to be. It's, it's got to be uh, brutally honest sometimes, right? And uh, But you know who's more brutally honest than I am? And that's my wife. She is. She is a black and white type of person, and she's going to tell you what's right every time. And, and you may not like what she has to say, because sometimes I have to tell her, I don't feel like hearing what you got to say right now. But nine times out of 10, when she speaks, she, she, she's right, and she's been completely honest about it. And it's nothing but the support. Anytime I pick up the phone and call, she's there. You know what really makes you good? When we have a game during the midweek and I look in the stands and she's sitting behind the bench. And I was like, oh, you thanks for coming. And she's like, yeah, you shouldn't have put that kid in. That kid wasn't doing nothing at this time. And why would you even play that kid? You probably could have won the game. That's because she likes to come see the uh, the 50 people you have sitting on your bench and uh, <laughs> in the system basketball uh that you that you run with all the uh, pushing the floor and the shooting and and then the theatrics on the sideline. <laughs> I'm just passionate. If, if people don't look like me and they doing the same thing, it's passion. So why come I why come I can't just be passionate too? Why? Hey, you can call it what it is. I I just like to see it. That's that's, uh, that's what I'm there for. <laughs> so moving on, this past week we had some discrepancies that came up between men's and women's basketball. What do you think about that? Be, having a wife as a women's coach, co being a coach on the women's side, but also seeing the environment in the SWAT schools on the men's side. What What do you think about all of that? Well, the NCAA, I'll, I'll, I'll jump right into that and say they were wrong. Um, I, and I, me and my wife talked about this, and, uh, and I told them, I said, the NCAA has created this this situation for themselves because they've spent years talking about empowering women athletes, right? Well, gone are the days where the women athletes are going to accept status quo and take that excuse of, well, the guys just draw more people or whatever. It's like these women are speaking up. And how do you think you can show up with a weight room that has a set of dumbbells and provide the men with an Olympic gym type of a setup for working out is crazy to me. And for the NCAA, it's time's coming to where you need to promote. I understand the, the laws of supply and demand, right? The men do generate more money. But then the question is, why do the women not generate more money? Well, if you're not marketing the women's game with as much gusto as you do the men's game, guess what? You're not going to draw money. And I, I don't know if the women's game would ever be on that same level of a draw, but I do know, look at the last couple of years with Sabrina Inesco. She was the best basketball player in the nation, regardless of men or women. And because of the uh, media hype of her abilities to play and how they tracked her every move, she made women's basketball interesting for the last two years. She became a, a draw to see and subsequently Oregon's team became a draw and it was packed out. Right. And uh, so I, I, I don't like the, the um, belief that nobody watches women's basketball. If you promote it and you provide the, uh, the resources, they will come. 
So do you think this was a slight oversight or do you think the NCAA went into this knowingly doing this and thought no one would recognize? Well, here's what I do know. When you have the two committees that put the team, uh, the, the uh, March Madness on, they, they're not really talking to each other, right? You have the men's committee, you have the women's committee. Uh, what I think, like to think happened is somewhere someone should have been talking as far as facilities and infrastructure wise to ensure that, Hey, we're providing the same or as close to the same as possible for both the men and the women, because you can't, you know, um, you can't sell the women short when they're putting in just as long of a season, they're working just as hard, you know, basketball season goes over what four months. These kids are all spending just as much time, but on one hand, you got the men eating steak and the women are eating mystery meat. You know, it's like, that's, that's not right. That's not fair. <laughs> you know, and, and you keep, and the, my thing too is the NCAA keeps talking about the student athlete experience. Well, if we're going to focus on the student athlete experience, then we need to try to make as much as possible, make sure that that is a high level. Right. And I understand most of the women, uh, Women's basketball has gotten better. And uh, the, uh, my wife and I were talking about this. The problem with women's basketball is there's still a lot of disparity, right, between the top echelon teams and then the middle and lower level teams, right? On the men's side, right now, I mean, you got Iona, you have Gonzaga, uh, Loyola, all these teams going far in the dance and some of the true powers you know, heck, Duke and Kentucky didn't even make it, right? So there's a lot more parity on the men's side. The women's game is not there yet. So early on in the tournament, at the Division One level, early on in the tournament, yes, some of the scores are lopsided. But once you get down to the Sweet 16, that's when the women's game, you know, uh, the second weekend or second day of the first weekend, that's when it really starts to get good because the gap closes as we get to the better teams. And that talent is starting to spread out throughout the um, Division One landscape. So now you're seeing the Gonzagas on the women's side, right? You're seeing the Belmonts of the world. Um, I think today, who was that? Uh, just beat Tennessee. Um, I forgot the school. But you're starting to see some mid-major teams truly start to make a step. I mean, Troy almost beat um, uh, Texas A&M last night, right? And so you're starting to see that gap close. And if the NCAA keeps promoting it, it will be better. The, the ladies' game is evolving, and it's, it's exciting. I, I love watching the women's game because uh, I think the women play with way more emotion, um, and they, they take it a little more personal than the guys do. To move women's basketball forward, do you think men need will do you think men need to be involved to help move it forward or do you think it can survive on its own without men in it? uh as far as what do you mean like as far as the decision makers like as part of the decision makers it's like for example uh i was on a board and they were talking about how to make the board more diverse but all the people that wanted to make the board diverse, no one was diverse on that board. So you got these people that's not diverse making decisions for the yeah. diverse people. Well, I, I think I think basketball is a sport that either you can play or you can't play. You know, and why why do we why do we feel like you know only 
you can only have women talk for the women and only have men talk for the men, right? You know, you got uh, who's that Becky Hammond with the Spurs. Why are we so excited that she's a paid assistant for the Spurs? Nobody's, I'm not questioning her pedigree, right? She knows basketball. So hire the best candidate. And, and let's, let's get beyond the gender of the decision makers and, and say, hey, these are the best basketball minds to help. And what I do like seeing is the, uh, the NBA players starting to really um, um, show their support for the WNBA um, and for women's basketball in general. And, and, you know, the late, great Kobe Bryant, you know, once his daughter, Gigi, got into deciding she wanted to play basketball, he did more in his short time in retirement for bringing attention to women's basketball than anyone has. <clears throat> I think any one single individual male has in like since the WNBA has been around, right? Yep, you're you're right. In in that short amount of, amount of time, he made the biggest difference. Yeah. So and it, it was important for him to be seen on the sidelines, you know, taking his daughter to the game of the WNBA games. When they played, uh, Oregon came down to play uh, Long Beach State uh, a couple of years ago. We went out to Long Beach State to see uh, Serena Neskew and uh, Sabatow and um, or, uh, Ruthie Hebert play, and Kobe and his daughter show up. And man, just the just the atmosphere that he created, being there was great. But one thing I I am really impressed with what he did like that night is. Even though everybody was excited to see Kobe Bryant and they wanted to get pictures with Kobe Bryant, he did not. He basically said in so many words, this is this is about Oregon and Sabrina Nescu, and he took a back seat and uh, uh, he wasn't, you know, really letting the fans come up to him and, and he let the ladies have the night. He was just a he was just a girl dad taking his daughter to watch some women play basketball. And that's big, and we need more of that. This has been a summer and time of no other that I have ever experienced. Uh, we, we went through COVID. We're still going through COVID, and we don't know how long that monster is here to stay. And it had it has a lot of people around the country reevaluating themselves, reinventing themselves. And the one thing that came about upon this movement is a social justice movement. And it kind of shocked the sports world with the recent events that took place during the summer months. To go from those events in the summer months that we've seen with with senseless with, with people and senseless deaths, to go to what we just seen a couple of months ago that we thought we would never see with the with the invasion of the Capitol building. Can you speak upon? those low moments and what we can do as a society, as a community to move forward from that? To move forward from that, the thing we need to do is have a conversation. And it's a hard conversation and it's an ugly conversation. Uh, last summer, it was the Black Lives Matter and and, and still feeling the, uh, uh, the fallout from Colin Kaepernick, you know, from several summers before that. Uh, now, I mean, here we are with what happened in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago and the rise in uh, 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 incidents involving Asian Americans. And the problem is we can't act like uh, racism doesn't exist or that sometimes uh, the our society 
does not benefit um, minorities in the same way that it events, uh, benefits uh, white people in our, uh, in our society. And no one's saying that anyone's bad, but we need to admit that there are flaws in our system and we need to ensure that, um, that everyone's getting the same treatment and that we're not, you know, um, uh, we're not blaming or uh, holding things against a minority, uh, whereas a non-minority gets that benefit of a doubt. You know, some of the uh, the bad words, quote unquote, bad words that some people don't like to hear is is that that term white privilege. But you know, growing up in Alabama, and you grew up in a uh, somewhat rural area. I grew up. I went to high school in a, a fairly rural area, and and we saw it day to day. So we're not surprised, right? And everyone, I just had a friend ask me, why is this happening in 2021? And it's like, hey, we've yet to have a conversation about this. As a society, we put band-aids on it and, and we haven't had the long, hard truth. And until we do have that long, hard discussion, we can't start the healing process. You keep putting a band-aid on it, it's going to, the band-aid is only going to work for so long and then it's going to come off and then you're going to have the same issue over and over again. And how to move forward is to acknowledge, Hey, there's injustice in our society. Uh, and not everybody's a bad person or whatever is, it is what it is. There is injustice and we need to speak on that injustice and we need to call out that injustice when we see the injustice. For example, the, uh, the high school in Oklahoma, the girls near, uh, kneeled during the uh, uh, the national anthem, and the gentleman who was calling the game had a hot mic, and he made racial slurs directed at a bunch of kids, right? And um, that's the situation right there. Is like he didn't think that mic was on. How many times have people made those comments when the mic isn't on, right? And that's what we need to fix because you don't have to agree with what they're doing. Have they disrespected anyone? Have they caused any problems? No, they haven't. The best thing to do instead of criticizing people is to try to understand why they feel the need to protest or to take a stand. You know, what are they trying to tell us? You know, and that's what Martin Luther King said. Uh, I'm not condoning a riot, but he said the riot is the voice of the unheard. So, you know, and then he made, he finished that with what has America not heard? And that's what we need to do so we can fix this and we can start to move into a, uh, to be the great country that, that we really are. I mean, America has a bunch of great qualities, but this, this ugly, ugly piece of our history is just sitting there hanging over us and, and we can't reach our fullest potential until we can address that issue. What? So Colin Kaepernick, basically just lost his whole career because he's one of the, the key figures in this, in this social justice movement. People were upset because he took a knee. People didn't think he, people thought he was disrespecting the flag. People thought he was this and he was that. All of this kind of trickles back to where this kind of started with him. So do you think now that people actually, and I know you can't speak for everyone. So this is just an opinion, opinionated question. How big was that knee that he took? That knee was huge because 
And that, now I will back up and say it's not just didn't start um, there, right? He just brought attention to it. Uh, and he didn't even bring attention to it before anyone had ever even noticed what he was doing. He had been silently protesting for weeks beforehand. Now, I don't agree with everything that Colin Kaepernick said, but he was he was protesting. He was doing exactly what uh, others before him have done before, right? Like, how can I how can I stand up and you know support this flag when it's not? And he wasn't just calling out this one group of people. So he was talking about injustice as a whole. It's not uh, addressing the injustice of all its people and. The knee, and I think he took a, a he took a calculated risk, and he knew what it was going to be. And uh, I think it was Nate Boyer who played in the NFL and was a ex uh, military guy. I think he was in the army. He was the one that suggested, "Hey, Colin, sitting down is disrespectful. Uh, you know, why not take a knee? Because a knee is a sign of respect, right? So when you propose to your wife, what did you do? You got down on the knee, right? When you pray." to whoever you pray to, typically, what do you do? You take a knee and you give reverence, right? Uh, if you're a subject of Queen Elizabeth, when you meet the queen, what do you do? You take a knee. So I don't understand the argument of how a knee became disrespectful when taking a knee is humbling yourself, right? Um, before, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of respect. So. His knee did raise an issue, and what we saw erupt was the ugliness that had been simmering just below the surface because we haven't addressed the hard question, the hard subject that we need to address. And yeah, he's lost his career. Colin Kaepernick's never going to play in the NFL again, um, but I think Nike made sure he's going to be fine on that end. But um, but he he took a risk and. He he seems like a man at peace with the decision that he made. He took a stand and and he made the sacrifice for it. Growing up in the South, we we got the we got the speech. When you pull it over, you do this. When it's yes sir, it's no sir. It's you look the cop in the eye. You don't do anything that could stop you from ultimately coming back home. Uh, for some have been in that position many times. I made a joke with someone when I'm still driving now and a police gets behind me, I'm shell shocked sometimes because I've been pulled over so much and I, I automatically do a right turn. Or or if it's a store right there, even if I'm not going to that store, guess what? I'm throwing on that blinker and I'm going into that store just because I don't want to get pulled over. You are raising a black woman that's soon to be a, a young young black woman and a, a black man, a black boy that will soon be a black man. What are some of the conversations you're well, having with your kids? My, my kids are in this situation uh, because they're of a mixed race uh, uh, with their mom being a uh, uh, Caucasian woman. Um, so they have a lot of questions and we don't hide anything from them. And we've had, we've had some friends ask why would we you know, their kids and why would we let them see some of the stuff, <clears throat> stuff that's going on on the news. And it's like, well, we watch the news in our house and they have questions and we need to address it because we need to have these discussions. So with them, it's, we talk about it. I mean, honestly, um, when the protests got real ugly, just down the road from where we live, that was a pretty nasty uh, protest last summer. 
where it, it became physical and uh, some nasty things were said. And me and my son actually passed by the protest and he saw all the police out. He saw all the people, you know, shouting obscenities at, you know, what was pretty much a peaceful um, protest. You know, you don't have to agree with it, but no one was doing anything wrong, just, you know, exercising their constitutional right. And he actually asked my wife a question of, is it safe for my dad to go outside? And, and, you know, that's, that's heartbreaking when your son has to ask that question. And then, like you said, we're going to have to have that talk, you know, of what to do and what not to do, because things aren't different when it comes to you and I versus people that don't look like you and I. And to piggyback off that, because of our nature of careers, before I got into coaching, we have lived all over the country. I have never been pulled over so much <laughs> until I moved <laughs> to California. <laughs> and I, you know, we we live in a neighborhood where I'm probably, you know, probably only black. I made a joke in one segment that I'm I'm the king of my neighborhood because I'm the only black, so I'm I'm crowning myself <laughs> the king of the neighborhood. But I got pulled over so many times. Like, where are you going? What you doing? Where you live at? You know, and it was like, man, this is supposed to be California. It's supposed to be a melting pot. Have you ever experienced anything like that uh, since you've been on the West actually, Coast? I have not. Not in the West Coast. But when I lived back in Alabama and in, in Arizona, I definitely did. Uh, one of the scariest moments that I've had is I got pulled over in southern Arkansas, northern Louisiana at 1 o'clock in the morning driving back from Shreveport. And, uh, man, I got pulled over on a dark highway, and I was scared because I, I was like, I don't know where I'm at, and uh, if something happens, no one even know I'm gone. So um, I haven't experienced that here in California. Luckily, I've only been pulled over um, once, knock on wood, in, in California and uh, issued a ticket. But it's still, you know, like you say, when I see the police pull behind me, I do the same thing. Um, you know, I had to talk to a uh, friend of mine and I told him, I said, hey, I, I like to think that I'm a very non-threatening looking guy outside of my height. You know, people get, you know, shocked whenever I stand up. Um, but it's like, I grew up where you know, not saying anything bad about police. I respect the job that he, they do. I have a good friend who's a police officer. And we've had some interesting conversations. I was like, but because of the how I grew up, when the police came around, it was in your best interest to get away. And uh, my friend who's a police officer, he was asking me, he's like, is it really like that? I was like, it really is. I was like, and I tell, explained to him how I grew up in a community where I had some friends in the black community whose house was right on the corner. And because he had a large family, there was always a lot of kids, you know, high school to early 20-year-old kids at their house. And if you weren't in their yard, the police would drive by and say, hey, you guys need to go on somewhere or, or what have you, all right? But I worked at the local McDonald's across town and across the street from the McDonald's was a big parking lot. And I would see uh, white kids, and I had friends who were over there, they would just hang out in this big parking lot, right on the main street in the uh, in Pell City. And 
I mean, I know what was going on over there. It, it was a lot of things that if the police stopped, someone could get in trouble, right? But I can't tell you how many times I've seen the police just drive up and down the road and never, never once stop to see what was going on over there. But they were stopping my friend's house in their neighborhood in the front of their house and tried to disperse a crowd. And, and the only difference that you could see was the group that was in the parking lot didn't look like me. <clears throat> and, and that's, you know, it's sad, but that's the reality of some of the situations because I joked about it. Like you said, my wife, my, my wife is white. Uh, my kids are biracial too. And, you know, it started off as a joke with my daughter when she was about three, we would be in the car together and the police would get behind us and I'd be like, act normal. And she was like, I am acting normal. And I'm like, what does acting normal mean? It's like, just be stiff. And so now we'll ride down the street. And, you know, she's 14 now. And if she'll see the police and joking, <laughs> she's like, all right, act normal. And, you know. It's, <laughs> it's sad and funny at the same time. And it, yeah, because my, it, it, like you said, man, I got family members that are, you know, that are actually, uh, my my brother-in-law, he's a he's a state he's a state trooper for Alabama. You know my, my you know my sister, she works for the the sheriff department in Tuscaloosa County. So it's just like you said, all cops is not bad, but you know we still have some bad apples. And you know, like you said, you you gave good solutions of what we need to do, and it goes back to what you said. Let's have a conversation. But sometimes conversations yep. can make people and, uncomfortable, and that's where we are. Is is the reason why we don't have those conversations is because it, it does make you uncomfortable. It, um, but to truly understand someone, we have to walk a mile in their shoes, right? Or try to see things from their perspective. Uh, I have an Asian friend who, with in light of everything that's been happening um, in the Asian community recently, uh, we were talking and and she was explaining to me how you know, it's just so infuriating because she was always raised, hey, if you work hard, keep your head down, don't say nothing, then you will be accepted. And then yet we're seeing, you know, the Asian community is being blamed for the coronavirus, right? Um, and we can go down a whole long, another long discussion on that. But, you know, they're wrongfully <laughs> being blamed for the coronavirus. And, and you know, we're, we're, we shouldn't be doing that to each other. We shouldn't be doing that to our neighbors. And, you know, I like to live my life based on my Christian beliefs. And the way I see it is God commanded us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your, your race, creed, or color is. I need to treat you like I want to be treated and how God wants me to treat you. Right. And unfortunately we don't always do that. And, and, you know, we put stipulations on how we're going to treat people and that's not right. And um, we need to do better. Do better. Last thing. I didn't mean to hold you this long, but I got to touch this before we get out of here. You follow the swag. You follow it up and down. You live, breathe, and eat the swag. Dion Primetime Sanders coming into the swag. What do you think? Whew. This has been an ongoing discussion in the, in the swag community. Um, 
first off, anytime you can get good publicity, uh, it's great. Uh, I, I hope Dion does a, uh, to an extent, is successful at Jackson State, and um, because he does have a platform, right? Uh, of course, uh, their next game is against Alabama A and M, and I hope Coach Maynard and the Bulldogs beat the dog out of uh, Jackson State. But it is great to have someone who has a platform and who can um, help push the agenda, right, for HBCUs and bring that attention. However. The SWAC existed before Dion. The SWAC will exist after Dion. Dion is not the savior of HBCU sports. He's a guy with a platform that I would love for him to use that platform to benefit the HBCUs, but the HBCUs don't necessarily need uh, Dion. Um, I mean, think about it. Most of our HBCUs started at a time when uh, Black Americans technically couldn't even get an education. Um, my university uh, was founded by a former slave in 1875, and it's still here today, right? Um, and it's just like all other HBCUs, there's always some hurdles, always something going on, but they continue to survive. Um, so as far as Dion and the SWAT, great. Uh, but he's going to learn that the SWAT has a, uh, as Coach Strip told you, he doesn't have SWAT hours. And uh, we're gonna help him. Uh, we're gonna help him realize that. And I think Bama State. Uh, I know you saw what happened with Bama State after they beat him. They they put a pitch on the jumbotron of <laughs> him and his Jerry curl from his draft night, and he, he took offense to that. And it's all I could think of was what they told us when we joined the SWAT. Welcome to the SWAT. There you have it, people. Want to thank you for joining the show, Walter Bishop, Alabama A&M alum, Bulldog for Life, SWAC follower. I'm going to have to get you back on the show. I'm going to get DT Green on here with us, and we go do a whole SWAC show after after the football, after this spring football season over, so we can go back, great, do the report cards and everything. But I want to say thanks for coming on, brother. I appreciate it. Any last hey, words or comments for you leave the viewers uh, with? I, I really appreciate it. I've actually enjoyed some of your other podcasts. Um, I look forward to getting another call from you and joining in. And uh, I wish you nothing but the uh, best success uh, with your new venture here. Uh, just if the tables are ever turned on my wife, just remember we're friends. That's that's uh, all I have to say. <laughs> oh, I'm going to run it up, and I'm going to smile while I'm doing it. And then I, if I got three timeouts, I may burn all three. But she know it's all in the love of the game, and I'm going to give her a hug after the game. I just got to rub it in. Because I remember when I was at that one school that didn't nobody want to play me my first year, hey, they ran it up on me. And you know what I did? I told my players, if you don't want to run up on you, hey, play harder. I can take it. But can you take it when the tables are turned is the question what I asked a lot of these coaches. But thanks again for having you. And I look forward to speaking with you and much success to you and your family. All right. And stay thanks, blessed, JP. Stay you guys have up. a good one out there.